Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hi there, I'm Randad Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. You just power through it. Right, right. Perfection's not an option. Exactly. This is Political Breakdown from KQED in San Francisco. I'm Scott Schaefer. Today on The Breakdown, when political campaigns, journalists, and pundits are looking for nonpartisan, smart, and insightful analysis about the campaigns and candidates in the United States, one source of information stands out, the Cook Political Report. It was started 40 years ago in 1984 by Charles Cook, known to all as Charlie, whose goal was to provide in-depth analysis of races for the hundreds of races for the House and Senate. The analysis is based on factors like voter registration data and trends, how voters in those states and districts tend to view political issues, and how the political climate helps or hurts a candidate. Charlie Cook joins us later in the show to discuss how analyzing political campaigns has changed. But first, KQED politics correspondent Guy Marzarati is here to talk about some political news breaking today that Republicans in California are launching yet another recall attempt aimed at Governor Gavin Newsom. Hey, Guy. Hey, Scott. So, yeah, I've been talking to some Republican consultants this morning, and they're all kind of scratching their heads, wondering, like, what is going on? Why is this happening now? What is the point? Um, you know, what do you think? I mean, is, is there some logic to this as far as you can see? I mean, hard to see uh, what, you know, what the long-term strategy is here for, for this group. But I will say there is a difference in how the Newsom administration is responding. You heard uh, his team come out right away and say they're taking this seriously before signatures are even, be, you know, started to be gathered. That's was not the case a few years ago, um, which, to be fair, look, most recall campaigns fizzle out before they're ever heard of. I just think the experience that that Newsom and his team went through a few years ago are clearly informing how they want to try to get ahead of whatever uh, potential recall attempts are to come. Yeah, and when you look at the list of issues that they are laying out, are, these are some of the things that were voted on in the last recall, like he closed schools during COVID longer than other states. Uh, and then some things that really have nothing to do with him, which is that home prices are so expensive, uh, you know, that he's really undermining Prop 13, that you know, that old ballot measure from back in the 70s. So it's hard to see what even the rationale for the campaign would be. But it's it's also coming at a time when Newsom is raising his national profile. And I talked to Mike Madrid, who is a longtime Republican consultant up in Sacramento. And, uh, you know, he pointed out that uh, this is really one of the reasons, this kind of thing is one of the reasons that Republicans have a hard time in California. It's one thing to disagree with our politicians in the civil society. It's another to have this zero-sum politics consume us and, and make it impossible for us to get along and work together and seek compromise. This, this type of activity is precisely why 
there's no value in Democrats reaching out and talking to Republicans in the legislature to seek compromise because this is what angers and stirs up and motivates the Republican base at this time in, in California history. The point he's making, of course, is that, you know, that this is just doesn't make a lot of sense. It's not going to win over voters. And in the end, it helps Gavin Newsom because it enables him uh, to raise lots of money to fight the recall right. that he can spend on other things. Right. And and look, you know, you mentioned the, the listed reasons. It's worth noting when that recall, that 2021 recall was first filed, it was before the pandemic. It ultimately became a recall about pandemic response. And I think a few things have to be said. First, even that campaign, which ultimately ended up getting routed on the ballot, it caught lightning in a bottle based on the fact, number one, that campaign was dead in the water before it got an extension by a judge to have more time to collect signatures because of COVID. And two, you had in a matter of weeks from that, the French laundry incident, where which really galvanized opposition uh, to Newsom. It's hard to imagine those two kind of uh, out of the box factors coalescing. Again, that's not to say that, you know, the discussion about recalls is going away. In fact, I think there's a chance California voters are, you know, potentially voting this November on changes to the recall process. That's a discussion that started after the Newsom recall in 2021. Um, And currently there's a proposal making its way through the legislature that would eliminate the successor election part of the recall process. So certainly I think the the recall process in general is up for debate. You might hear more discussion about that moving towards November, even if this campaign uh, fizzles out like many recall campaigns before it. Yeah. And the other thing is that let's suppose they were to get some traction, catch lightning in a bottle, as you say, and they start collecting money. Well, at the same time, there are some races that you know Republicans really do care about in California, like defending some really uh, up for grabs, toss up congressional seats like Mike Garcia in L.A., David Valadeo in the Central Valley. And anytime you start diverting money away from things like that, uh, ultimately, it's not really going to serve the party very well. But we'll see just uh, just how far along this actually gets. All right, we're going to take a short break. And when we return, veteran political analyst Charlie Cook joins me. You're listening to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. We'll be right back. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer, and today we're honored to have with us 
someone whose name is very familiar to those of us who follow politics carefully. His name is on one of the most widely quoted and appreciated publications, the Cook Political Report. Charles Cook founded it 40 years ago this year, and the Cook Report has become essential reading, really, for those of us who write or talk about elections and politics. And among the things it's best known for is its ratings of congressional races for both the Senate and the House, and and the scale that goes from safe seats for one party or the other to likely, then leans, and ultimately toss-ups if either party seems to have an advantage or not have an advantage. And Cook stepped back from editing the publication a few years ago. It's now called The Cook Political Report with Amy Walter, who many of you, I'm sure, regularly see on the PBS NewsHour. But Charlie Cook is with us right now. And welcome to The Political Breakdown, Charlie. Good to have you. Thanks for having me on, Scott. Well, you founded the report in 1984, uh, and that, of course, was the year that uh, President Ronald Reagan was running against Democrat Walter Mondale with his running mate, Geraldine Ferraro. Uh, Was there anything special about that year that made you want to launch it then? No, I had uh, I had become I, I'm up in Louisiana and had worked in a Senate campaign my senior year of high school and uh, had been a debater and kind of got recruited to help in on the Senate race. And then um, and I'd worked in the Democratic side uh, exclusively. And then uh, about the early 80s, I found myself becoming a swing voter. And I wasn't becoming a Republican, but I was voting, splitting my ticket in one office. I might vote for a Democrat, the next a a Republican or swinging back and forth. And, you know, it's in kind of poor taste to work for one party if you're not voting for them all the time. And you can't work, you know, you can't work for both sides. So um, I was trying to figure out how can I make a living in politics, uh, uh, but not work for either side. And there were a number of political newsletters out there, but none of them seemed to be aimed at people that ran political action committees, whether they were labor and environmental on one side or business on the other. Um, So it's from the standpoint of someone who had worked in campaigns, been a pollster, uh, and had actually helped run a political action committee and uh, sort of tailored to what they were looking for. And um, um, I took my $6,000 out of the Senate retirement fund and my late father-in-law co-signed a bank note for $10,000. And that's not how I recommend to start a business, but it survived. <laughs> it worked. Well, you know, nowadays, of course, we things are so partisan. And, uh, you know, even you ask people about the economy, and it depends on whether they're a Republican or a Democrat and who's in the White House. Back then, that was less true. Um, did that make it easier to start something that has become known as, you know, nonpartisan? It, 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 it was. I mean, it was just a completely different era. It was almost like being in a different country. And, you know, coming from one side and what I did was went over to meet with some of the people at the Republican campaign committees. And, you know, I knew some of them already and said, look, this is what I'm going to do. But if I'm not playing it straight, I won't stay in business very long. And if you um, if you'll give me a chance, I'll show that I'm going to be playing it as straight down the middle as I possibly can. And you could do that then. Um, I don't think you could now. Well, I want to dig in a little bit on the ratings, because that is in some ways what the Cook Report is best known for, the ratings of all the, especially the House races, because there's so many of them. The spectrum goes from solidly in like a safe seat for a Republican or a Democrat all the way to a toss up. And I'm wondering, like, what's the threshold for moving a race into a different category and especially moving it into a toss up? Well, we're not purely quantitative, but it's not that we don't use numbers. But what we um, what I had in mind is. Solid means, you know, it'd take an act of God for this side to lose, okay? 
And likely it's not a competitive race, but there's a plausible argument that it could get there. And then lean is competitive, lean Democrat, lean Republican. Those are competitive races where somebody has an advantage, but you know, it wouldn't knock your socks off to see the other side win it. And then toss up is where neither party has a clear advantage. So the focus was on, you know, lean Democrat, lean Republican, toss ups in between the real competitive races. And um, it, they were, it, it's people don't mind if you're wrong from time to time, if they think you're playing it straight, you're being absolutely as objective as possible. And um, it's like uh, there's not a team in Major League Baseball that doesn't have a statistician doing sabermetrics, but there's not one that's fired all the scouts either. And so they take a blending of both. And that's what we've tried to do. Yeah. So I want to dig into one race in particular here in California. And we have four that are now in the toss-up category for, from the Cook Report. And they're all races where uh, the incumbent is a Republican who defeated a Democrat in 2022. And, and these are all rematches, essentially. Um, and I want to ask you about one of those, which is the 41st Congressional District. That's where Ken Calvert, the Republican, he's been there forever. I mean, for decades and decades. He defeated Will Rollins, the Democrat. This is a seat that's in Riverside County. It's a very long district. It goes from Corona in the West all the way through like to Rancho Mirage, Palm Springs. And so last time around, Will Rollins, who was a former federal prosecutor, uh, ran that race. It was very competitive. Uh, he ended up losing by a few thousand votes. You know, it was certainly close-ish. Um, and now it's a toss-up. So what makes the difference? What made you put that race in particular into a toss-up category? Oh, first of all, the House ratings are all done by David Wasserman, our House editor, who is just a brilliant, brilliant guy. And uh, so, but what would typically happen in this case, it was close. The district has changed a lot. It went from a um, um, R plus six to R plus two. Now, what that means in English is that uh, it used to vote six points more Republican than the country as a whole. And now it only votes two points more Republican than the country as a whole in presidential voting. And where we see the turnover, where you know districts flip over, it's generally R plus one, D plus one, R plus two, you know D plus two or three. It's it's where it's close to that center point, uh, that tipping point, and that one that district has become that way. And um, you know the amazing thing is to have four toss ups in California because we went for years and years and years where. Uh, gerrymandering was so strong that there were basically no competitive districts in California for a long time. And so it's really kind of unusual to have, to have this, but it's, it's um, uh, longevity incumbency doesn't mean what it used to. You've got a, uh, a Democrat challenger with a good profile. Um, seems you can raise, raise money. So it, it's going to be, um, it's going to be a very competitive race. And I'm, and I, I don't know, presumably Donald Trump will be at the top of the Republican ticket. And I'm not sure that he's going to be, you know, that much of an asset in a California, in a competitive California race. Well, in a district like that too, he could be a big motivator for Democrats to go out to vote, which would help in that case, Will Rollins, the Democrat. Um, uh, you mentioned California, not didn't used to have all these competitive races. And of course, the big change here was when voters 
voted to create a citizens commission to draw these lines, take it out of the hands of the legislature. And basically, you know, as they say, let the instead of letting the politicians pick the voters, the voters pick the districts in a sense. Um, How big of a difference does that make? And we're not the only state that has done that. I think Michigan now does it, uh, maybe Ohio and, and some others. Yeah, Iowa is the purest example of where it's a group of statisticians go in a you know windowless room and told not to to ignore where incumbents are and existing lines, and um, that's the purest. And and California, it's kind of a Rube Goldberg, but it works. I mean, it's sort of very complicated in terms of how it gets how these people get on to to this commission, but. Um, it, it does seem to be a vast, vast, vast improvement. But there are other places that, that do it, maybe do it a little, little, little more straightforward. But it works. When you say it works, it means meaning what? You have a district that makes sense because of the different groups are kept together instead of being divided up and having their, their power diluted by the lines? Well, what happens, I mean, generally speaking, if Republicans are in charge in a state, they basically draw districts that will maximize their, their their benefits, and Democrats do the same thing. And um, as a result, 19 out of 20 members of Congress are in more danger of losing a primary than a general because districts are either drawn to be very red or very blue, and there are very, very few purple swing districts anymore. And it's made the districts, as a whole, it doesn't reflect the country. It 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 reflects sort of the two ends of the spectrum, and it makes it very, very difficult for governing. Well, it doesn't often doesn't even reflect the state, right? You may uh, see yeah. a state that's pretty well split between Democrats and Republicans, but when you look at the legislative races, because of the lines that were drawn by one party, they're skewed way in favor of the party that drew the lines. Exactly. There's a phrase, uh, packing and cracking, where you know, you're the dominant party, and one way of going about it is you pack in as many people in the opposition party as you can into a few number of districts so that it sort of, it makes all the adjacent areas very much strong for your side or crack it up. Like, let's say you had a city that would normally vote Democrat, but by doing it pie shape with Republic, you know, with Republican suburbs around it, you can, you can, um, you can uh, divide and conquer if you will. And, um, but you know, to Democrats, uh, re- uh, gerrymandering is something that Republicans do, and to Republicans, gerrymandering is something that Democrats do. And to be honest, when given the opportunity, uh, that's you know that's how each side behaves. And it was only by the initiative process that uh, California got it. I mean, it was over the dead bodies of a lot of politicians who were against it. But it was where, you know, one of the few cases where citizens actually do prevail. Yeah. And in that case, it was the governor who supported it, Arnold Schwarzenegger at the time. Um, yeah, but, who was not really functionally was not in either party. And so he would be willing to do that. Yeah. Well, well he was I, also I, a rhino, you know, a Republican in yeah. name only. And I think he saw that people like him were being sort of primaried out of the Republican Party. Um, but we don't we don't want to go in too deeply exactly. into that. Do you have any sense? I mean, the sort of the conventional wisdom uh, is that in a presidential year, the turnout goes up and that tends to benefit Democrats because they have more occasional voters or first time voters. Uh, do you see that trend in 2024 or are there some other things happening like the war between Israel and Hamas that could scramble that conventional wisdom? Well, that is certainly the way things used to work, but we've had a realignment over the last 30, 40, 50 years that may scramble that a little bit. That it used to be 
um, education, uh, college educated, graduate school, people with with four year college degrees or more turned out, voted at a much higher rate than more, you know, working class or poor people. But that with the a shifting of, you know, working class whites and now starting to be a little working class African-Americans, Latinos moving away from the Democratic Party into the Republican Party and upscale suburban college educated voters, more women, but not exclusively moving from the Republican Party over into the Democratic Party. The 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 education mix is change is different now than it used to be. And so that trend may not hold up in the future. And the other thing is, I think most of us assume that turnout's going to be way down hmm. uh, compared to uh, you know 2020 um, and maybe below 2016. I mean, you've got two of the least popular political figures in the country likely to be facing off, and majority of Americans don't want either one of them. And so uh, you could see, and and a lot of these demo, you know. Groups that had been pretty democratic, younger voters, for example, African Americans, um, there there's a little bit of a demoralization there going on, and so their turnout could come down. So, I, I'm I, I think that the, this election will have a very different will not be well the turnout will be lower compared to 2020, and just as uh, you know, 2018 was a record turnout for midterm election. 2022 is pretty good. It wasn't a record, but it's pretty good. Uh, I think you're going to see it curl back downward in the lower turnout. Hmm, interesting. Well, I want to ask you just a few questions about your bio. You uh, you, ha- you do still have a bit of that Southern drawl, even though you're living in Maine. <laughs> you grew up in Shreveport, I think, Louisiana, which is uh, represented now by the speaker, Mike Johnson. Yeah, it's uh, funny. I We went to the same high school. His parents were in my high school graduating class, and I've never met him. <laughs> I'm sure that could change if you wanted it to. Um, what are the politics, you know, growing up there, uh, you know, how did that influence the way you saw the world, and, and did that evolve? It really wasn't the politics. I'd been a high school debater, and in debate, you know, one hour you debate the affirm. You have a one issue topic for the entire year, and you're debating the affirmative side one one hour, and next hour you might be doing the the uh, the negative side. And you you learn that um, if you're open minded you see that there are generally merits on both sides and you appreciate that, you know, truth, justice, and the American way is not always exclusively on one side. And you, you see merits and various merits, merits and arguments. And so I think as I, the longer I was involved in politics, the more I began to see um, that there were a lot of grays and that, uh, you know, a similar moment is when you meet someone in the opposition party who you totally disagree with, but they may be a nice person. And then you meet somebody in your party who you may agree with a lot, but is like a complete jerk. And you, uh, it, it, it's, it's kind of liberating to say, you know what, I'm not, I'm not going to blindly go one way or the other. But that's, no. And that really speaks to the power of personal touch, right? And, and and whether you like somebody and whether you like a candidate personally, as opposed to you may not agree with them all the time. Well, and, and that's why professionally what I've tried to do and the people in that in this field that have done well, there are people that have been able to successfully subordinate their own personal views. And you may think somebody is a horrific human being, but if it looks like they're going to win, well, they're going to win, you know, or somebody's fabulous and, and 
but doesn't have a chance in the world of of of, of winning. Um, and you learn, and whenever I, you know, I start to have a partisan thought, I kind of just suppress it because you don't want it to get in in the way of your your judgment. And I think now it's uh, with the partisanship so much greater than it was back forty years ago. It's more important and less common for people to be able to do that. Yeah, you mentioned that you were a debater in high school. Did you grow up in a political family? Were your you know parents uh, you know active in one party or the other, or just very political in general? Neither one of them had ever worked in a campaign, volunteered, gone to. I mean, no. I mean, my father was sort of had some interest in it, but um, you know, no, it was not. A, I I actually got recruited. Uh, I was using a law library, and and someone at that law firm said, Hey, how would you like to help out so-and-so? And, uh, uh, and, and I did, but it, it was not, uh, but if you're, if you're into debate, that leads itself to politics. And I'd already applied and gotten into Georgetown. So it was, uh, gone to debate camp a couple summers. So I, I, I'd already been bit a little bit by the political bug, but it wasn't ideological. I was, I've always been fairly middle of the road. Yeah. Before I let you go, uh, looking ahead to this year, what are you looking for? And what, uh, you know, in particular, what might turn out not the way we expect it to? Well, any, anyone, anyone who thinks they know exactly what's going to happen is delusional or they haven't been involved very long. Uh, so they're always going to be surprises. But this year, um, it, it's um, there's almost like a codependency between uh, former President Trump and President Biden, and that arguably Trump is probably the only Republican that Joe Biden could beat, and Biden is probably about the only Democrat that Trump could beat. And Either side would be better off with a generic candidate that didn't have the baggage that these two guys bring in. And I say this as someone who's you know, known President Biden for a long time, and I like him a great deal. But, um, you know, age and all that, it, it's kind of gotten into the equation. And um, so that, you know, when only a third of the people in your party want you to run again, then that usually is a sign of something. Uh, but you know, there's certainly a lot, plenty of legacy Republicans that aren't really excited about Donald Trump either. So this is a very, it's going to be a very strange election, and the people that are going to be the deciders are the eight to ten percent that are the pure independents, don't lean either direction, and maybe just like both the, of them. Yeah, well, they don't like they don't like Donald Trump, but they don't hate him, and they're going to be voting for who they think will help them the most. I mean, the, to me, the fascinating thing about this election is it's the first one since 1892 that you had back-to-back -back presidents run against each other. So that basically invites a comparison side by side. Was I better off before January 20th, 2021, or am I better off now? And once you weed out the nine out of 10 people that are partisans, uh, pure independents, they tend to read, watch, listen to news less than anybody else, less than other people. Um, they tend to be fickle. They tend to get buyer's remorse. And they're certainly not your listeners, that's for sure. Because uh, <laughs> the people that listen to you are people that care about politics. And pay close attention, which means they are interested in the Cook Political Report with Amy Walter and Charlie Cook. I guess I should say happy birthday. You're, you're, you're 40. 
40 years old. Uh, well, I turned ago. 70 in November, so <laughs> there you go. Uh, I'll take I'll take either one. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate thanks it. Thanks for having me on, Scott. All right. And that's a wrap for Monday, February 26th. Political Breakdown is a production of KQED. Our engineers are Jim Bennett and Seal Muller. Our producer is Izzy Bloom. I'm Scott Schaefer. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.